Amen, church. If you remain standing for the reading of God's word, and I hope you have a copy of this text this morning, you will find us in John chapter 7. We're going to look at a large portion of scripture today, but we're just going to read a few pieces of it here as we get in, get going. John chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 14, and then we'll jump over to verse 37. It says, when the festival was already half over, Jesus went into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't even, he hasn't been trained? And Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. And if anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Verse 37, and on the last day, the most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up, he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Now, again, like I said, we are going to try to cover a good portion of text this morning. Good morning again. Glad to see everyone here today. We are uh, going to keep on plowing through our study in John. Just be in prayer. we got a number of families, of course, on traveling this weekend, Labor Day weekend. Got a number of families who are just staying home because of just illness, and so we just that's just that time of year and time of life right now. So be praying for them as they are not here. If you if you see someone that are missing someone this morning, we we'll just reach out to them, send them an encouraging note, tell them that you are missing seeing them at church this this week. Um, you may recall back before we kind of paused our time in John, back in uh, May or June, we were been kind of we were walking through the chapter six. And um, in the beginning of chapter 6, we see Jesus feed the 5,000. And he asked, um, and he was asked by this group of people that he had fed after, uh, after the next day or so, um, a really important question that will really serve us well today. What can we do to do the works of God? This was, a, this was what was consuming their attention. How can we do what Jesus is doing? How do we participate in what God is doing? How do we, um, uh, I guess, find ourselves doing the works of, of true religion might be the better way of putting it. And Jesus answered them. And he said to them, you must believe in me. This is the work of God, he says. You must believe in me. You must believe in the one that God has sent, the Father has sent. He says there in verse 29 of chapter 6. Now, why do I go back there? Well, because after he tells them he has to believe in him, he goes through the rest of chapter 6 and he begins to unpack what it means to believe in him. That he is the bread of life. That he is the one in which we must enjoy. He is the one, he is the true bread of life. His flesh we must eat and his blood we must drink. Now, I, I get if you're not familiar with Christianity, that sounds a bit off base for us, right? Like to eat flesh and drink blood. And, and so I'm not going to deal with that, obviously, because we've already dealt with that back in June. I trust that you can go back and pop it in there and you can get a better explanation of that. But it's not as weird as it sounds. So let's say it that way. Um, but this is worth bringing up here in this portion of our text today and reminding ourselves of this because um, 
Because it's not that mankind, I think sometimes we fall into this trap, it's not that mankind is anti-religious, unreligious, a-religious, if you want to use that terminology. It's not that that, in fact, man, deep within us, has a deep religious impulse. Because we're made in the image of God. Now, we've suppressed that impulse, but nonetheless, we have as deep religious impulses that, that dwell within us. The problem is, as we see in their question, and even their rejection of Jesus, because by the end of chapter 6 and into now, we're finding that people are not really wanting the true religion that Jesus brings, the true spirituality that Jesus brings. They want some other form of it. They want all the works. They want all the fanaticism. They want all the experience, but they don't really want the God that has given them these things. And so the, the reason why we want to start there is because religion, at least man-made religion or man-centered religion, is the pursuit to serve and to satisfy ourselves. Again, feeding the other 5,000. They, they follow Jesus until the end of chapter 6. Your teaching is entirely too hard, Jesus. It's not worth it. I don't need all that food. I can find someone else to give me food. I can find out some other religious leader out there and, put my, and stake my claim with him. And so then when we saw last week and his brothers come in and they're antagonizing Jesus and they're saying, hey, if you really are who you are, you really are doing these works, um, you need to go up and you need to go to Jerusalem during this festival and you need to show yourself. Of course, Jesus says, look, you don't get to tell me, you don't get to tell the Father the times about what time I'm supposed to go do these things. You, you don't have a clue about what that is. And we, we talked about that last week. But we left off last week, though, even though he wouldn't go to Jerusalem and make himself this public pronouncement of him being the Messiah, he did end up going to Jerusalem nonetheless, did he not? And he went up there secretly, and he was watching everything that was kind of unfolding. And as he was watching everything unfolding, he's seeing that that this religious life on display. The religious life, he's going into the heart, by the way, of the religious life of, Jew, uh, of Israel. And he's going at the height of their religious life in this festival of booths. And the reason that's important to note is because of the way in which people are carrying out their religion. The Jewish leaders are frantically looking for Jesus, wanting to arrest him, wanting to put him on trial. You got people saying, pontificating, well, he's a good man, and others are like, ah, no, I think he's being deceptive. The heart of man-made religion is self-serving, self-satisfying. The reason, ultimately, that mankind, as we even noted this morning in Sunday school, the reason mankind does what mankind does is not because they're not religious and we're not religious. It's because we reject the religion, we reject the spirituality, we reject the truth that we have been given by the God of the universe. And so the reason we're going there this morning because is when we get back into verse 14, no longer is Jesus secret in Jerusalem. He's actually in the temple and he's teaching. Did Jesus somehow or another renege on his uh, of his, what he told his brothers he wasn't going to do? No, not at all. He actually, it's just, it's just simply this way. When you are in Jerusalem and you are the center of all truth, truth cannot be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The light cannot be hit under a, under a basket. And so Jesus is teaching in the temple because there's no way you, the truth can see and be confronted with such error of the religious life of Israel and it not expose 
the deep, frail, and fundamentally broken parts of human-centered religion. And that's our main idea that I want to suppress through this morning. That Christless religion, that's what we're talking about here. Man-centered religion is Christless religion. Christless religion cannot bring us closer to God no matter how religious we are, no matter how many good things we do, no matter how many people we feed, no matter how many good works or social work issues we, we find ourselves in, Christless religion cannot bring us closer to God. Rather, only as Jesus completes his mission, as we'll see later in this text, will we find rescue and living water for our souls. Amen. Let me say that in case you didn't get it again. This is what Jesus is going to do through his teaching and through his ministry and his mission today. He's going to show us that Christless religion cannot bring you and I closer to God. Only he can, through his mission, bring us rescue and living water for our souls. So if you're tempted to go to a church simply because of certain rules or activities or programs, you're missing the point. Christless religion will never bring you hope or satisfaction. It will not do it. So there's going to be three things we're going to look at this morning from this text. Big chunk of text today. One, that Jesus is teaching, which is what we're going to be dealing with here first, exposes the hypocrisy of Christless religion. That's what Jesus' teaching does. When people see Jesus teach... They, can't, they don't have an explanation for it. But the reason they don't have an explanation for it is because it's actually exposing the heartlessness of their own religion. The second thing we're going to see here in a little while is Jesus' mission offers us rescue that is timely and that is urgent and that is spirit-filled. And then at the end, we will finish with how Jesus' promise is received. And namely, that Jesus' promise is received the way it has always been. By a polarizing and fickle people who have sinful natures. Okay? So let's look at it at first point for a few minutes. Jesus' teaching exposes the hypocrisy of Christless religion. This is what we're trying to rid ourselves of. This is what the church's chief aim is. Never to allow Christless religion to ever find a foothold in the people of God. So Jesus is, as I've noted already... He is, he's teaching. He can't hide the light. And people are around him there. And it says he went up in the temple and he began to teach. And the Jews, they were amazed, it says. Like, whoa, where, where does this guy get this kind of learning from if he's never been trained? Like his teaching confounds the Jewish leaders of his day because they can't just write him off as some kind of weird heretic. That was the one, one of the reasons why Jesus, they could just not just go arrest him like they could other religious wingnuts. Because they didn't have a category for the teaching that Jesus was bringing. And rightfully so, because this teaching comes from a very, very different place than theirs does. It is clear here to them, though they don't know why, that Jesus' teaching is very, very different. That Jesus' teaching doesn't come from the same typical streams of discipleship like their rabbinic teaching order that they had, this, this whole system of uh, rabbis who would train different disciples. In fact, Jesus himself, as far as they knew, and as far as we know, never once sat under any notable rabbi, or at least earthly rabbi himself. What makes Jesus' teaching so different, so amazing, is simply this. We see this in verse 16 and 18, through 18. 
his teaching is not secondhand teaching. That's the main reason. The reason why they can't deal with Jesus is because his teaching is not like theirs. It's not secondhand teaching. It's not secondhand knowledge like the Jews were. His teaching was a direct line, it says there, from God. Look at verse 16. Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If you, anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether his teaching is from God or whether it is speaking of my own. So Jesus puts his finger right on the main issue. The reason why you can't categorize my teaching, categorize my teaching properly, is because ultimately you don't know the one who sent me to teach. No matter how much, no matter all your pomp and circumstance of your own religious activities, you don't know the one who sent me because if you did, you would know whether or not my teaching is from God or not. But because you don't know God, you couldn't, can't possibly know that my teaching is from God. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? And of course, this marks the most fundamental difference between Jesus' teaching and that of the main, primary, most important, most uh, well-known teachers of Jesus' day. And in verses 19 through 24, he begins to explain why that difference matters. Look at verse 19. It says, didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? Of course, they were trying to kill him back in chapter 6, right? Because he, or because he was claiming to be of God, right? That was what he's referring to here. And Jesus says, I performed one work, and you are all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses was given, has given you circumcision, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, you are angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to the outward appearance. Rather, judge according to the righteous judgment. What Jesus is saying is he's exposing their heartless religion, their surface, their outward religion. He's saying you've made accommodations to do things on the Sabbath, and you're okay with it. In other words, you would circumcise a man on, on the Sabbath? And you, then you want to hold me responsible for healing someone on the Sabbath? He says, get over yourself. Be honest with yourself. One of the things we noticed this morning in Sunday school was, was when they fell in the garden, one of the very first things we noticed is that their eyes were opened. And why were their eyes open? Because at that moment, they're more self-conscious of, their re of the reality of who they are at that moment. These people lack self-awareness. They their, their sin hasn't truly been exposed. They're right there in the presence of, of the Son of God, and, they, and, and yet their eyes are still darkened. And so Jesus is putting his, 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 his hand, his finger, right on the main issue. And the main issue is this. Dependence on the expertise of your human tradition and the proper pedigree in which teachers are developed causes you not to see who I really am. The Jews took a great deal of pride in their rabbinic uh, uh, tradition. They, they, they put a lot of authority in these teachers, and, they, and, and, and a teacher was judged on whether or not they came from a, another kind of teacher. And so that was kind of the way in which you kind of got your street cred. Oh, did you study under R.C. Sproul? Well, you're good. Did you study up under, you know, uh, uh, under, uh, I, I don't even want to be mean here, but, you know, some other prosperity gospel preacher? Well, you need to, you need to stay away. Right? This was the kind of idea in which it did. Now, listen, of course, this is a not necessarily, like, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, right? It's not that Jesus is saying they shouldn't have earthly teachers. 
Very faithful earthly teachers. You need, I need earthly faithful teachers. Those three men, Justin, Josh, and Delon, are my pastors, just like they're your pastors. And they're faithful men of God. And, and I am one of, your, one of their pastors, and they trust me, not because I've got some kind of degree, not because I sit in my office all day and study the Bible all day. I wish that was actually the true of most pastors, but we really don't get a chance to do that like most people think. But the reality is they have put so much emphasis on the tradition itself rather than the law of God. In other words, they had taken their tradition and they divorced it from the very law of God that they said this system was sent to serve. And this is what we do too, right? We'll take our teachers and then we, we, kind, of, we kind of take teachers and we go, oh, oh, oh that person's legit because he reads these books. Oh, this person's legit because he listens to those guys' sermons. Again, that could very well be. Jesus is not calling out the rabbis. He's calling out the tradition. He's exposing who they are. You, you discredit me, he says, because I don't come from one of your earthly teachers, but you fail to see me because I come from the ultimate teacher himself. That's the problem you, don't see, you see. If your teachers had been really teaching, you would know who I am. But no, you got yourself all wound up in your human tradition. Tradition like this takes on a life of its own. And it can take on a life of its own on all churches today. Because it's, it's something apart from the purposes of God while appearing to serve the purposes of God. It happens all the time. And the ultimate result of this Christless teaching, as we continue to go on is that, again, they put the priority of the tradition of keeping the law rather than the sufficiency of the law itself. We do this ourselves. We'll subscribe to a certain set of doctrines that are there to, to help us understand Scripture rightly. But I've actually had people walk in this very room and they judge our church based on a pastor, a pastor in California and how much we subscribe to that same pastor's doctrine. That pastor, the last time I checked, was not the Messiah. And the last time I checked, he's not the one who gave us the scriptures. And he's a very faithful pastor. The point we're trying to make here is that Christ's teaching puts the emphasis on the tradition that keeps the law rather than the sufficiency of the God of the law itself. And this is what happens in us right here. You'll get, you'll get caught up, if you're not careful, of the traditions that we do as a church, the rhythms that we do as a church, and we won't give ourselves to the actual sufficiency of the scriptures ourselves. And we won't study the scriptures for ourselves to see if I'm even telling you the truth or not. And when that happens, churches die. They decay because they're not themselves being trained and pushing themselves into the word more and more. They're just taking for granted that the guy up front is going to be telling them the truth. There's a podcast out called uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is, a, of course, a notable church out in, at the time. It's, it's now defunct, but it uh, is now closed. But it was out in Seattle under a pastor out there, and the, pa the whole church collapsed after the pastor himself had to resign from his ministry. And I grew up in the shadow of this, and I was impacted by that. I think most guys that I know are impacted by this and caused me to do a lot of reflection. But here's the thing that I find the most, most disheartening aspect of all this, is how many people just trusted that man rather than the Bible that that man said he was preaching. 
I love you, and I want you to trust me, but only trust me as far as the scriptures allow you to trust me. You hear me? That's so important for us. And here's the litmus test, by the way, in case you're wondering about how you can identify whether this is happening or not in a church. The litmus test is exactly what we see here. Jesus says, stop judging according to the outward appearances, but rather judge according to the right to righteous judgment. When we become more concerned, or when a church becomes more concerned for the appearance of a man, or the appearance of a church, rather than the heart of a man, or a woman, or the church, we have failed the first principle of the gospel. Because the gospel is about the heart of a man or a woman. The gospel is about the heart of a community of faith called the church. And when we fail in that, that's when you know we are drifting into Christless religion. Now, with that as our preset, let me just kind of draw a couple of points that I want to make sure you know that we're committed to and we want to urge you to be committed to here at Grace before we move on to the second point. We are not interested, at least I hope we never do become interested, in doing church mission as optics. Right? You know what I mean by that? That somehow or another that our mission is defined by how the world sees us. Did we do the right thing? Did we make the right call? Did we make the right assessment? Did we, did, 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 you know, and, and there's, everyone has an opinion about how you do things these days. Church as optics is not the mission of God. And I don't want to see our church ever fall into that. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're doing religion as optics. How do you appear on the outside rather than confronting the decay that's on the inside? Let's abandon the idea of church as optics. And the way we can do that is to put a high priority as the church for this church and our spiritual leaders and our teachers to be for the glory of Christ alone in everything. I want you to know, and we talk about this often among our elders, we want to be careful what we teach you and what we say to you and what we presume to expect of you that it's always conformed by the scriptures and not our own whims or our own ideas that's something that we true try to do our best in the church and i'm going to say this up front seems today to be divided between two very large camps that need to repent one camp is social justice junkies Right? That the church's mission is to make sure we have the right perception among the world and in the social spheres. And there are things the church needs to be very, very vocal about. Things that are clearly sin in Scripture. But then you also have the other side, which I'm, I'm going to call culture war junkies, who feel like it's our job to fight about everything. And Jesus says, in the, in, in the heart of, of Christ-filled religion, is that we would be, you know what I'm going to say, Jesus junkies. That it's all about what Christ is doing and has done for us, in us, in this fellowship. That must be the most preeminent pursuit of this church. Again, as I said, certainly the gospel speaks on very, very specific sins, and we need to be a church that speaks to those sins where necessary, when it is clear that we need to speak to those sins. So if 
there's a sin of racism in the world, we need to speak to sin of racism, clearly. If there's a sin of sexism in the world, we need to speak to sin of sexism. If there's a sin of culturalism or, uh, or, or, or partiality or, or, or any other type of sins, the church is very, must speak to these sins because they are part of the truth that God has revealed to his people. But when we turn the church into a dog and pony show, this is what happens. We create a kind of Christian community where people are expected to conform to certain outward appearances, certain tribal functions, certain cultural commitments. And I fear that the church will lose its mission, lose our focus, lose our call, not because we're doing bad things, but because we're making good things God things. Right? That we, when we speak to these issues that are true in the Bible, we don't deny these things in the Bible. When we come to them in the text, listen, the church does not exist to run from one fire in the world to the next fire in the world. When we do, we're, we're going to have a church that's whiplashed. Keep it about Jesus. Keep it about his word. Keep it about the gospel. Yes, speak truth, speak truth. We need to speak. If we, if we're like, I, I was listening to Carl Truman speak about this in his podcast this past week. He goes, if you are in the deep South that has a deep history of racism, your church needs to speak against racism because there's still parts of that that are there, whether or not we like to admit that or not. But at the same time, if you're in New York City and all we do is are silent about things like abortion because we're afraid we're going to offend people in New York who, where, by the way, the abortion rate is at the highest anywhere in the nation. We're also not being truth-tellers. We be truth-tellers on every side of the equation. Why? Not because a cultural demands, because of what the Scripture demands. We're not going to be social justice junkies here. We're not going to be culture war junkies. We're going to be Jesus junkies at Grace Church. That's what we're going to be about. We're not going to be a dog a pony show that makes everything a gospel initiative. If everything in the world is a gospel initiative for the church, guess what happens? The gospel loses its power. If everything is the gospel, nothing's the gospel. And we need to make sure that we don't fall into that type of rat race. Rather, I want to call us to re-examine what the mission of the church actually is. Not to run from one cultural fire, one social fire, one whatever kind of fire to the next one, but rather that the church's mission is to be a counter-community in and of itself. That, yes, maybe we can impact change in our own individual spheres, wherever, wherever that may be, the Lord will use you in a great deal of many different ways. But we need to be a counter community that points to the, the, the troubles that the community in the world's community can never actually address. So what if the church itself says, yes, just since we're on it, like we value life. And when a woman is found in an unwanted pregnancy, we're going to come around that woman to help her when she is in that place, whatever different means that are there. We're going to be a people that value all cultures and nations and, and tribes and tongues because the Bible tells us so. 
And we're going to be this wonderful community of different melanins worshiping the one true living God of the universe. Why? Because that's what we're going to be doing in heaven one day. So we need to be a counter community that just of truth tellers. And we're going out into our spaces like jobs and schools and civics, and we, we function as witnesses to the truth as the church itself is a counter community to the community of the world. Does that make sense? That we're not like the world. Not because we are self-righteous, not because we aren't hypocrites, because many of us are, I am. We've all fallen into sin on a, on a regular basis. But because the truth of the church's community is to give you a profoundly different vision of what the kingdom of God actually is. Not the kingdom of God that you want it to be. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were in our series on the uh, nature of the church. We define the church as a new nation of redeemed image bearers. That's what the church is. A redeemed, I'm sorry, a new nation of redeemed image bearers. And J.I. Packer notes this about this new church. That the task of this church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. So instead of us running from one fire to the next and feeling like we gotta have, we got to have that perfect little tweet, that perfect little Facebook post, that perfect, perfect little Instagram thing, every time someone, something happens in our world, what are we going to be? Truth tellers. Pointing to a radically different community. Not of perfect people, but as sinner saints. Being made new in the image of God. Seeking to glorify God and transcend through repentance and faith, the sins of our world. Can you vote? Should you vote? Yes. Can you get in civic organizations and do work? Yes. And that will be up to wherever the Lord leads you. But as far as the church is concerned, that's our mission. To make the invisible kingdom of God visible. We are not going to be a church of optics. We're going to be a church of Jesus. That makes sense? Second thing that I want us to notice here, though, is that if Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy of Christ's religion, which is what he's been doing here, in verse 25 through verse 39, Jesus shows them then the only answer to your Christless religion is his mission. Jesus' mission, here's the main point, offers rescue from Christless religion that is timely, urgent, and refreshing. When you get to verse 25 through roughly 27, people are listening to Jesus' teaching. They're seeing that the religious leaders are not doing anything about it. They're not arresting him. And they're beginning to wonder, is there something to this guy? Is there something to this guy? Who is he? Maybe the authorities know that he really is a Messiah and they're just not willing to say it yet. Um, but then they begin to question him themselves, verse 27, uh, where this man is from. Because certainly we don't know where the Messiah is from, but we do know where he's from. And, and what that meant was, well, he's a lowly Nazarene, poor boy from the north side. He's a carpenter's son. So if we know who he is from, and that's not what we understand the Messiah to be, we, 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 we got some problems. And so Jesus, 
His teaching is so amazing because it is rooted in his mission. That's what he picks up in verse 28. As he was teaching in the temple, he cried out, You know me, and you know where I am from, yet I have not come on my own, but on the one who sent me. But the one who has sent me is true, and you don't know him. We've already kind of noted that already. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. And then they cried, tried to seize him, yet no one was laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? And of course, at that point, the Pharisees are like, they're spinning their minds, are spinning off the charts here. Like, wait a minute, we're losing ground. We're losing street cred. And this guy's getting way too much ground. The PR is, we need to do some serious PR work here. But Jesus' mission is the means to rescue. The reason you don't see his teaching confronting your Christless religion is because you don't understand the mission he's came to do. Let's pick up in verse 33. And then Jesus says, I'm only here with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And, and where, I am, where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, who, where does he intend to go that we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jews, the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks or teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. And then Jesus responds, and this is the big crescendo of the mission, on the last day, the most important day of the festival. And this is important, it's an important note there, by the way. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. I'll just stop there for a second. We see four things about Jesus' mission that we need to take notice of. Why his teaching is so authoritative, why they cannot understand his teachings because they don't understand his mission. Here's his mission. First, his mission is from heaven. That's important. He's not on some earthly mission. He's not a part of some subgroup's mission. He's not a part of some interest group's mission. He's part of heaven's mission. Jesus makes it clear that his mission is one from which his father has sent him. And the problem, the reason why you don't recognize that is because you don't recognize the one who has sent him. He keeps on bringing it back to that point. Your religion has blinded you from seeing the one true living God, not actually helped you see him. Although it's been designed so that you would see him. But because you don't see me, it's because you, you don't see me because you don't see him. The second aspect of his mission is that Jesus' mission is on heaven's timeline. I mean, these guys were frustrated. They, wanted, they tried to arrest him twice. And yet the man still walks out of Jerusalem standing tall. In other words, nothing will thwart God's mission to the world through his son. Nothing will stop it. Not even the most important person in Israel. Not the most influential leaders in Israel could not stop what God has started. If you want to know if you're a part of something big, know that you're, when link up to something, one, that's been from heaven, and two, that only heaven can stop. Because nothing else could stop this mission, clearly. Third thing we want to notice about this mission is that nonetheless, even though it was on God's timing, it was still nonetheless urgent. He tells them, I'm not going to be here for a short while. Take notice of what I'm telling you. 
be ready for the things I'm trying to share with you. In other words, like Jesus' ministry was a short ministry, 30-some years at best. His ministry was only three years. And he gave them just this amount of time for, for the Jews to take notice of these things. And these guys were like, why is he so urgent? What's this whole deal about he, he, he'll go somewhere where we don't know he is and all that, all that nonsense? Friends, Jesus had an urgency in his message. And may I add that we should have an urgency in ours as well. And the last then, and the most important part, is that only his mission, his mission will quench the thirst that you long for. Only his mission will quench the thirst that you and I long for. That's why he says, anyone who's thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. The one who believes in me will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Why was he so urgent? Because you and I are so desperate. You and I are in such need of God's rescue. We live so far from the things of God on any given day, and we must continually run back to Jesus to have our spiritual thirst quenched. And again, as I noted earlier, it's no coincidence that this is on the last day of the festival. Remember last week I told you that the Feast of Booze was like the final festival of the year? And that that final festival was supposed to be a celebration of all the harvest, all the promises of God, and that it stood as a sign of the work of Jesus. That when Jesus comes, he will bring in all of the harvest, all of the hope, all of the promises of God. And so Jesus stands up on the last day of the festival and he offers those that promise. I will quench your thirst. You have looked everywhere else. You have harvested your lives into so many other things. And guess what you keep coming up with? Empty. Because you have to go back to the next year and start the whole thing all over again. This is the problem at the feeding of the 5,000. These people were going to Jesus because they kept getting hungry. And Jesus says, of course you're going to keep getting hungry. But all you're looking for is earthly bread. And I come to give you heavenly bread. Jesus is making it very clear here that his mission is that it's been sent by the sovereignty of God. And it is urgent that we have our spiritual thirst quenched. Friends. Friends, I just want to encourage us in this point to, just to continue every day of our lives. Every pursuit of what we do as the church should be about drinking deeply of the living water of Jesus every day. Never outgrowing that need. We live in a dry and parched land. And sometimes we willingly allow ourselves to get dehydrated because we do not run to Jesus every day. And Jesus is inviting us to do so. And I just pray that we will always recognize that. And, that, and then we will never like, pull back from this urgency to let other people know where they can get their thirst quenched too. I mentioned at 
Brother Dell's memorial on Thursday night, at the very end, I said, we need to keep taking up the same work of heaven that Brother Dell had given his life to. Friends, that's the urgency of us, of our moment, too. There are a lot of thirsty people in the world, and my question is, is who are you bringing the living water to? So how do people receive this message? Jesus has given them this grand promise that everything was going to unfold through him and the Spirit was going to descend and going to fill them. And next week I'm going to come back and look a little bit more detail about the work of the Spirit. We'll look at verse 40. When some from the crowd heard these words, namely that he would be the living water and he would send the Spirit, they said, truly this is a prophet. And others said, no, this is the Messiah. And some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. And so all this stuff is going on. People's responses were wide and varying. And we should expect that. You and I have such wonderful promises of God, and yet those promises are, 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 are going into a world that is deeply polarized, deeply fickle, because of the sinful nature of, human, human, um, of mankind. And we see here in these last few verses, 40 through 52, how the world will receive that when they hear these words. That One, we just noted there, confusion. The Jews were confounded by Jesus' word, and they, and they sent them into this tailspin of religious confusion. Why? Because they had not been filled with the Spirit. They couldn't understand what Jesus had said. Their eyes were darkened to their sin, and they couldn't see the goodness of the gospel right there in front of them. Friends, the world is largely confused and will always be largely confused about religious things. The average person approaches religion, again, as I said earlier, it's not that man is not religious, it's that man's religion is self-serving and, self, uh, and, and, and self-satisfying. That's what they're looking for. So the average person approaches religion as kind of this syncretistic approach, right? Grab bag. Well, I get a little bit of this Buddhism over here, I get a little bit of this Hinduism, I get a little bit of this New Age, I get a little bit of this Christianity, I get a little bit of this Muslim, I get a little bit of this Judaism, and we just go on and on and on and on and on. And they construct a God of their own liking. This is the pattern of worship that the people we meet on most days engage in. But Jesus makes his mission plain. He did it to the folks who fed 5,000 too, and he did it to his brothers last week, and he's doing it to these Jewish people right here. That the world's amalgamation of God, your amalgamation of God, Jesus says, it falls apart. It'll plunge you into anything, nothing but deep confusion. Then there's denial. Doesn't this scripture say that the Messiah, verse 42, comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? And so the people were divided because of him. Some wanted to seize him, and, and, but no one laid a hand on him. In other words, the Jews tried to discredit Jesus by using the scriptures. Well, that seems uh, kind of self-serving, right? You've had the scriptures all along, and now all of a sudden you want to use the scriptures to discredit Jesus. We call this Biblicism. Biblicism is not a good thing, in case you've ever heard that. Biblicism is the kind of way in which we use the Bible's teaching that wants to strain a gnat. We take, the, we take these little things that we want to discredit and we use, try to use the scriptures to discredit them. That's Biblicism. It's not a good form of biblical interpretation. 
And when we treat the Bible this way, we end up, no doubt, losing the beauty of redemption altogether because we can't see the forest for the trees. That's what I mean by straining that. We're just looking at the trees, folks. We're trying to deal, we're trying to deal with this little rotten tree we don't like over here, but we're not seeing the force of God's redemption. Approach the Bible with a redemptive perspective of interpretation, seeing the bigger story so that you can understand the, the parts better. You can't understand the parts if you don't understand the whole. And that's the problem with a lot of Bible teaching today, is it's biblicism that tries to strain out a net and discredit things, and we want to get into our own little pockets of, 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 of tribal you know, commitments. See, Jesus had just offered them living water for their souls as the ultimate joy, but because it doesn't conform to their view of who God is, i.e. biblicism, uh, who God should be or what God should be doing, they're not able to see the true heart of what the actual scriptures teach. And therefore, they will lose, we will lose hope in Christ and how God's been revealing this through the law and prophets all along. That's the problem, it, it's not like that they shouldn't have known this. The law and prophets, the very things that they said they were committed to, revealed Jesus all alone, but they were afraid, could not see that. And of course, then there's hostility. Verses 45 through 52, I won't read them. The, the, the Pharisees are very hostile. Very hostile to Jesus and this message he's bringing. Look at, I'll, I'll read a couple of verses. Servants come back, they don't have Jesus with them, and the Pharisees... Look at them on verse 47, and then the Pharisees responded, Are you fool too? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, who are you going to believe, us or him? And then they start getting really hostile. This crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. In other words, these, these people are being duped because they're not listening to us who have a supreme better training than this, this carpenter. They're hostile to this message. That's the world we're going to, we, the gospel goes into, a confused, denying, and hostile world. But friends, never forget that nonetheless, in spite of that, as we continue to preach the gospel, faith births. It blooms. It shows its face. It may not be full faith, it may not be full faith, but that's what we see. We see it in a couple of places already in this text. Let me just kind of walk you through it real fast. Verse 26, we see the people there are speaking publicly, and maybe, maybe this guy really is the Messiah. Maybe in verse 31, it says, many of the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't do more, more stuff than this guy does, right? Faith is budding in spite of the hostility, in spite of all the pushback, in spite of all the anger and denial. Faith is budding in people's lives. Verse 41. Sorry. And this is the Messiah. Again, did, did they have a fully orbed view of this yet? Of course not. But faith is budding. And then we come to the man of the hour, a man we've already talked about before. In a previous study, back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus. The one who came to Jesus previously, it says there in verse 50, who was one of them. And he said, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him, does it? And knows what he is doing, does it? And of course, their response to him is, is just as hostile, just as mocking. You know, you want a Galilee, are you? But even in the heart of the high religious order of their day, there sits a man... And we can only deduce 
from what we've seen in John chapter 3 and what we see here now, that perhaps faith is budding. I draw our attention to that because the, the madness of the world in which we live today would have us go run into our little shelters, withdraw from the world, just come into your little church, do your little church things, but keep it here because we don't want to have none of it. And they want their hostility and their denial, and we look at the confusion that's going on in the world, and we can be so tempted to say, you know what, that's okay, you're right. I'm just going to be a good little Sunday school person. I'm going to come into my church, and I'm going to worship my Jesus, and that's okay. We are called to that. But remember what I said, the church is to make the invisible kingdom of God visible. And when we see that kind of hostility in the world, we're tempted to go, well, they don't listen to us, so I'm just not, why even try? Because when we try, faith buds. Faith blooms. You may not see it yourself. There may be someone who stands on your, the fruit of your labors down the road to, to complete the work of someone coming into full faith in Christ. But friends, nonetheless, when you speak truth to the things the world loves that we know the Bible itself condemns, we are and they are called to that, that talk of being truth tellers. And God will use that truth telling gently, mercifully, I might add, to bloom faith to bring faith alive in someone's heart. Look for these places. Don't let the confusion and the denial and the hostility of the world cause you to retreat. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. That's not for us to know. But what is, it is for us to know is to to, to do the kingdom, work of the kingdom until he does. Father, help us now as we finish up this time and we prepare for the table. And then our brother Justin comes to lead us in this time, God. We just pray that as we come to the table this morning, that we, we are reminded that you have called us into, out of death and into new life in Christ. And as we are now living in this new life, we, we live constantly needing that refreshing of your spirit, that needing of that living water that you've given us in Christ, God. And help us now to just live in that as we come to this table and be reminded of that responsibility and both that call and that privilege that we have. It's in Christ's name. Amen.